welcome to the sermon podcast of Redeemer Anglican Church of Franklin, Pennsylvania. Through every sermon, we hope that you are encouraged by the Word of God and the redeeming grace of Jesus Christ. To find out more about our church, visit our website at franklinredeemer.org. So with this Sunday being Trinity Sunday, the initial thought is, okay, we have to preach on the Trinity, which is a somewhat daunting task when you think about it. And often on Trinity Sunday, you have different attempts to try to make sense of the Trinity. And the problem is, is that every, every example that we can have of God is always analogy. And because it's analogy, it never actually is the thing. Uh... God is beyond our comprehension, beyond our existence, beyond our, 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 our nature. And so anything that we use within our system to describe him then minimizes him and, and we don't get the fullness of what he is. And so Trinity is, is our way of understanding and making sense of this profound reality. So I, I didn't want to just jump in and, and be that guy that is going to try to map out the Trinity. Instead, I, I was thinking more and more about it. And the fact is, is that this triune God is a living God. And so I want to speak about what happens when we encounter the triune God. Specifically, something that I think is lost and misunderstood in our current time or in our society as a whole, which is the response of humility when we encounter the triune God. Humility, like I said, is often, I think, misunderstood. But I think St. Thomas Aquinas, one of the most influential thinkers in the Western church, I think he captures the essence of humility well. He was working through the, the great virtues and understanding the nature of those virtues, but he had certain virtues that he called gospel or Christian virtues, one of those being humility because they were virtues that were not found in the ancient world because in the ancient world, humility wasn't a virtue. But St. Thomas said that humility was one of the chief virtues and said that humility is ultimately the right assessment of the self. Or he said that humility is seeing ourselves as God sees us. It's simple but hard. See, because often we usually fall into two traps on either side of humility. One would be arrogance which is a false assessment of the self as being greater than we actually are. I remember um, reading a number of studies. One of the studies that was done in 1999 in Cornell is they did this study asking questions and, and, and with different people groups and stuff to figure out how people viewed themselves in America. And it was interesting to find that the majority of Americans thought that they were intellectually superior to most. And the majority of Americans thought that they were better people than most. 
and better assessors of humor, and more witty than most. I studied philosophy and theology, not math. Colleen is a math teacher, and so I, I would, I would, but I, I don't know math well, but if the majority are better than the most, the math doesn't line up. The percentages don't line up. But so arrogance is a wrong or false assessment of oneself, and we usually do this by, by looking on ourselves in light of somebody or people group that we find to be inferior. And then we feel superior. On the other side is insecurity or self-deprecation. And this one's a dangerous one because oftentimes we think that this is humility. Speaking ill of oneself. Saying, I have nothing to offer. I'm an idiot. Just a loser. I've got nothing in me. I hear this a lot in counseling. Where people come and are just say, listen, I'm, I'm just an idiot. I say, you're not an idiot. You just act like one. It's supposed to be funny. Uh-huh. When I'm doing the counseling, they don't find it funny either. But, um, <clears throat> but the thing is, is we often think that self-deprecation, that beating up on ourselves and saying that we're worthless or a nobody or we don't have anything to offer or we're no good or unlovable or unacceptable or any of those different things, we think that somehow that is being humble, but it's not humility. Sometimes it's a false statement that we say to try to get praise or sometimes that's how we view ourselves, but it's not a right assessment of the self. And then there are a small select group within society that have this special ability to simultaneously have both extremes at the same time, and I am one of them. Fluctuating back and forth between arrogance and insecurity and self-deprecation. But when we think about humility, I think few would see boldness to accept the divine call for mission as a product primarily of humility. But this is what I think is exactly what happens in Isaiah's recounting of his vision of God and his prophetic call. So I want to look at Isaiah's vision, his encounter with the triune God, and then in, in his calling. But I want to look at it because I think it represents something more than what happened 2,700 years ago to a Jewish man. Because in many ways, I think it is a foreshadowing or picture of all of our calling who are in Christ. So to begin with the vision of Isaiah, verse 1 of 6 it starts by saying, in the year the king Uzziah died. This is actually important. It's not just a time marker. If you go to the book of Second Chronicles, you'll see the story of Uzziah. Uzziah was actually a great king. A pretty faithful king. God blessed him with great success. Great prosperity. Judah was flourishing even in the midst of the time in which the northern kingdom of Israel was crumbling. But then towards the end of his life, 
In 2 Chronicles 26, 15 through 16, it says this. And his fame spread far. The he is Uzziah. For he was marvelous, marvelously helped till he was strong. But when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction. For he was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. He was a good king. He was a whole lot better than his father. God was blessing him and he was being faithful to God. But in that he became arrogant thinking that somehow that his greatness, his position as king it was entitled to him because of something superior within himself. And so even though he was not consecrated to do so, he entered into the temple, into the presence of God where he was not supposed to be. And was so arrogant to do what he was not consecrated to do. And if you go on through Second Chronicles, then he says that he came down with leprosy and died. In that same year, Isaiah has a vision. It says, Isaiah, the son of Amos, were uncertain, but most scholars in rabbinic tradition believe that Isaiah was of royal heritage. Some rabbinic tradition says that Amos, Isaiah's father, was the brother of Uzziah, or Uzziah. But we don't know for certain, but it is pretty sure that he was aristocracy. He was a great man, great learning and great position. And we see that through a vision, he is brought to the presence of God Where? Enthroned in the temple. Filling the temple with his glory. It says that the, our translation says train, it's the hem of his robe. Just the hem was so much that it filled the fullness of the temple. See what's happening? He's brought into the place that Uzziah went to. That he had no right to be in. The place that led to Isaiah's death because he was not consecrated to be there. But instead of being in a structure that Isaiah was not supposed to be in, a structure that represented the presence of God in the midst of the people, Isaiah was brought into that place where the fullness of the triune God's presence was there with him. He's brought into this place, the place that he's not supposed to be. And he hears, holy, holy, holy. This is not just lyrics to a song like we just sang. Holy means to be pure and set apart, to be sacred, to be other. And in Hebrew, they didn't have in ancient Hebrew um, uh, words to, to, to intensify. They didn't have like extreme or very or greatly. So if they wanted to intensify something, they would double the word. So if you had a hole that was super, super deep, it wasn't a deep hole. It was a deep, deep hole. But nowhere in the ancient Hebrew language, except for with respect to God, do you have a word tripled. But God is not just holy, holy. He's holy, holy, holy. 
There's no words that can describe the otherness, the purity, the greatness of God. And it says that his greatness, his holiness, his glory cannot even be contained by this temple that the, 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 the Jewish people were so centered upon. But instead, the whole earth is full of his glory. And in the midst of this scene, Isaiah would not have been filled with grand experiences of rapture. He would have been absolutely terrified. Not only because he is in the place that Isaiah was in that led to Isaiah's death, he's now seen the fullness of the holy, holy, holy God. He's well-educated. He was a devout Jew. He knew Torah. So he would have known that if anything impure or unclean entered God's holy presence, they would surely die. And then in verse 5, he responds to this experience. It says, And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. This woe is me is not like a superficial word of praise. If you're from my generation, you might get this, but whenever I hear this, my first thought is like to go to Wayne's World, where they would go, we're not worthy. We're not, like, he's not doing that. Like, oh, woe is me, God. Like, he's not, no, woe is a word of judgment. Proclaiming that one is cut off and is to be destroyed. He says, I am lost. This is not... I am lost in the sense of our understanding as Christians. You know, I, I was lost and now I'm found. No, he was a good Jew. He was part of the people of God. I am lost is an attempt to translate a Hebrew phrase that has the idea of I am completely destroyed and undone. As in, there is no hope for me. Isaiah is pronouncing upon himself the reality that he knows is coming his way. I'm dead. I am completely and utterly destroyed. These will be the last breaths that I breathe. He says that I am a man of unclean lips and dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. All that he had built up, his piety, his name, his family, his eloquence of speech is dirt. And interestingly, in the presence of the triune God, he finds himself now associating with the very people that for the first five chapters he was speaking judgment and condemnation on. That he is one of them. And what I find 
really interesting is if you go to the end of chapter 5, right before this, you have Isaiah pronouncing woes on the people of God, of people of Judah. It says, woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field until there is no more room. Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may run after strong drink. Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Woe to those who are wise in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes of drinking wine. Woe to those who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his rights. Right after proclaiming the word of God, proclaiming woe after woe after woe on the people of God, Isaiah comes face to face with God and exclaims, woe is me. This is a reminder that in the presence of God, there's no gradation of sin or people. When we're in the presence of the thrice holy God. We often think that, that we are better or superior by taking ourselves and, 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 and trying to compare ourselves to those that we think we're superior to. And we have a system, and we're usually on the top of the system. That's why, whenever we have these, these sociological surveys, we, most, hu- most Americans, most humans, think that they are better than most of their peers. And it's easy, because what we often do is say, hey, I, you know, I'm, I, at least I'm not a Hitler or Charles Manson. That's good for you. That's a good start. But that's often how we do this, and we see that we have Isaiah who was clearly educated, devout, of high standing. He was no pariah in society, but when he was in the presence of the holy, holy, holy God, that all burnt away. All of those people he spoke woe over He spoke woe now of himself as one of them. So any form of pride or arrogance that one might carry once we encounter the holy, holy, holy triune God, that will quickly be destroyed. And then in 6 through 7, it says, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal, that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. So you have this angelic creature that takes tongs from the altar and takes a burning coal and is bringing it towards Isaiah. Again, Isaiah would not be looking at that and being like, sweet, I wonder what's going to happen next. Like, he would have known that this was his undoing. Because in the Old Testament, the fire of God represented God's purity and his holy presence. 
When God was present, fire would show up on the altar. Fire would be in the wilderness to show where God was among his people. But it also represented judgment. Anything that was impure that came in the presence of God's holy purifying fire was consumed and destroyed. And he saw that heading his way. But then in verse 7, that holy fire kisses him on the lips. Instead of judgment being consumed by the holy fire of God, he is cleansed by a divine kiss, by God's purifying holy presence. He would have anticipated judgment and condemnation, but received instead unexpected grace and redemption. It reminds me of Jesus' parable of the prodigal son. You know, the one who took his inheritance, squandered it, brought shame to his name, brought shame to his father's name, brought shame to his whole family, and had nothing left and was going home expecting judgment from the father, expecting a backhand across the face, expecting to be kicked and spit on, hoping that he could maybe become a slave. And whenever he walked up, the father comes to him, and instead of giving him a backhand, it says he gave him a kiss. And then gave him a position by giving him a ring. But see, I think that this experience of Isaiah, though I do think it was his experience was not just about his personal commissioning. Because I think his call to the prophetic ministry was done in a way that it was prophetic itself. Because it was a future picture of the redemption of the gospel reality that we now live in, but also made up much of Isaiah's message after this calling. Proclaiming Emmanuel, proclaiming the suffering servant, proclaiming the day of the year or the year of the Lord's favor, proclaiming the redemption and purification that God was going to bring to his people. And it's interesting because then if you look in the New Testament, you see fire prominent again. And it still represents God's holy presence and God's purification. But this fire is no longer tied to judgment, but tied to the Holy Spirit of God. That it does consume and it does purify just as it did in the Old Testament, but because of the blood of the Lamb, it does not destroy us or judges us, but it makes us clean, lifts us up, and empowers us to carry the message that God has given us. We celebrated this last Sunday in Pentecost in which the Spirit of God, the presence of Almighty God came upon the people. And what did, how did that happen? It was fire that was upon them. Like Isaiah, all who are in Christ have the kiss of holy fire that cleanses us but doesn't consume us. It doesn't destroy us. 
And finally, we see Isaiah's response, which was humble willingness. Here I am, God. Send me. Encountering the holy kiss of God, his grace and redemption turned his woe is me into send me. Not as a response of arrogance or self-confidence. That was pretty well crushed in the presence of the thrice, thrice holy God. But he didn't respond with just self-deprecation of the nothingness that he was in light of the great holy God because he was nothing and you and I are as well. But instead, by faith, relying on the words that God said that you are now clean. A holiness that is his that didn't come from him. He responded with humility that was brought about by an encounter with the holy and gracious God. A right assessment of himself. Knowing that no matter what his family was, his background, his education, all of those different things, he was nothing. He was a man of unclean lips that dwell among a people of unclean lips. He was lost and he was, he was ruined. But also a right assessment of the self is to see oneself through the eyes of God. And God now sees him as holy because he has marked him with his own holiness. Marked him as clean, as forgiven. He was holy and worthy only because he had received God's holiness. And if you notice, he received God's holiness by God coming to him. Sending the fire to him and touching him with the holy, purifying presence of God. He was able to say, send me, because he was worthy of the call only because God is the one who had called him and made him so. He was able to rightly respond to the call of God because of humility. Because in that encounter, with a holy, holy, triune God that is also gracious beyond all measure. He was able to see himself as God saw him. And as I said, all who are in Christ have received a similar call as Isaiah. We've been invited into the presence of the thrice holy God to behold his glory. And in doing so, we are reminded of the grandeur of our God and our unworthiness apart from his grace. We are to contemplate his greatness and contemplate the fact that our contemplation of him doesn't even touch him at all. And in our liturgy, we come together to be reminded of how unworthy we are, apart from God's grace. We say it, apart from your grace, there is nothing good within us. We're also washed clean by the blood of Christ 
and purified by the holy kiss of God's purifying fire, the presence of God himself resting upon us by the Holy Spirit of God that has been given to us by grace. And like Isaiah, we have been given a message and a ministry to proclaim the glory of our holy God and his marvelous and exhaustible grace. To reflect and to proclaim the very encounter that has commissioned us as ministers of the gospel, making us ambassadors of his kingdom. It's interesting, if you read the prophecies of Isaiah after Isaiah's calling, there's two primary emphasis. One is breaking down the arrogance and pride of Judah by proclaiming the glory and the awesome sovereignty of God. And the other is proclaiming of God's grace that was going to come, that he was going to be Emmanuel, that he would dwell in the midst of his people, that he was going to purify the people of Israel, and he was going to restore them and make them clean and holy once again. His message was a carrying out the reality that he experienced in his commissioning and call. And the same is true for us. And we do so with gospel humility, which means that we see ourselves as God sees us in light of Christ. For some of us, that may mean that we need a renewed vision of God's awesome holiness. A reminder that all that we have built up for ourselves is nothing. And apart from his grace, we have nothing. That in light of his holy awesomeness, we are unclean and undone before the thrice holy God. So that as ministers to our neighbors, our co-workers, our family, each other, to those handful of people that follow your social media feed or whatever else it is, it, we need that encounter with the triune, thrice holy God to be reminded that we do not minister to others because somehow we are superior to them. We are all people of unclean lips that dwell among people of unclean lips. But for others, might need a fresh reminder of God's grace. That God has marked you as clean and worthy. Might need a fresh kiss of fire, a renewed sense of God's Holy Spirit working in and through you. A reminder that regardless of what you think of yourself, if you think you're worthless, if you have nothing to offer, if you think that you don't have enough talent, enough smarts, enough brains, enough friends, enough family, whatever it might be, that regardless of all of that, God has marked you as his holy and beloved child and called you to proclaim his glory and marvelous grace through your words and life. And a few of us might be like me and need both. And that's what we come together to receive is both. As we encounter the glory and holiness as well as the grace of our triune God who's beyond comprehension. By God's amazing grace through Christ's sacrificial death and victorious resurrection, 
we need to be reminded that all who are in Christ have been made worthy to stand in his full presence and are called to be prophets of the gospel. I'm using prophet here in the original meaning of the term. A prophet is one who is commissioned to proclaim the words of the king. And we do so as ones touched and filled by God's holy fire. The third person of the Trinity, God the Holy Spirit. Having received the holy kiss of the thrice holy God, and in gospel humility, which is a right assessment of ourselves, seeing ourselves through God's eyes as ones who are people of unclean lips, lost and undone in the presence of a holy God and yet made clean, marked as holy, declared worthy by the sacrifice of the Son of God and sealed by the coming of the Holy Spirit. And in that true humility, we all can have the humble boldness to say before the face of the great and holy God, here I am, Lord, send me. In the name of our thrice holy triune God, God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening. Stay tuned for upcoming sermons and consider joining us in person for Sunday worship. To learn more, check out our website at franklinredeemer.org. mercy, my God, is the theme of my song, the joy of my